0: episode is brought to you by Cloudflare Workers. For more, visit enjoytheview.io slash cloudflare workers.
1: Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ari, and today on our panel, we have Alex. Hello. And Tessa. Hi. And our guest today is Ash Ryan Arnwine. Would you like to introduce yourself, Ash?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Hi, and uh, thanks for having me. So I'm a developer experience leader. I was previously leading developer experience for Adobe Creative Cloud for about six years and recently joined a company called DataStax. We offer AstraDB, which is a database as a service offering powered by Apache Cassandra. So I'm really excited to jump in because my background with you is, is pretty limited and it's been a fun little journey getting the initial onboarding to it.
1: All right. So how did it go? Where'd you start?
2: (laughs) (laughs) I think where, you know, the first time I started with Vue was back when it was still Vue 1. And yeah, it was before, well, I'm trying to think it might have been before I really started doing much with React even, but I remember it might have been perhaps a Saturday morning, like in 2016, maybe 2017. I don't remember the exact year, but I just happened to wake up late and for whatever reason decided, you know what, I want to read the view docs. And I to my surprise, you could just pull up the the docs for view on a phone, and it was really approachable, like super readable on a phone. But also I just felt like the the overall introduction and the kind of initial orientation into the framework was just super readable. So for a long time, actually, I think that that sort of became a, in some ways, a North Star for me personally, when thinking about documentation and sort of how do you orient somebody into a a completely new technology. That having been said, I I didn't spend much time playing around with it just because job kept me busy focusing on other areas at the time. But I always uh, kind of thought back to that experience and held it in high regard.
3: Yeah, I I feel like I remember uh, us talking about you trying it around that time. And then again, we both went through the getting started guide in like 2018 or 2019 and that being like a very different experience. I remember you tried another framework and you liked their approach compared to like the the View getting started guide at that time. There was some kind of like interactive code editor. Does that sound familiar?
2: Yeah, it does. I, I remember going back and I think around that time, <laughs> around 2018, 2019 or so, again, I, I, you know working for Adobe Creative Cloud, a lot of what, I was working on in terms of developer relations at the time when it came to front-end was really about how to put user interfaces inside of plugins or extensions for Creative Cloud products like Photoshop and Adobe XD and so on. So I hadn't really been in the front-end world for the web for a good while at that point. And I had need for it at the time. I don't remember what it was. I had some sort of small project I was working on and I thought, okay, great. Let's have a front-end framework. And I want to be able to grab something off the shelf that at that point, I think it was, yeah, Vue was in Vue 2 and React was on whatever they were on at the time. I think it was around close to the time where it was starting to shift into 16.8 with hooks and all of that fun stuff. So I think what I found was in both places uh, or in both of those frameworks that I looked at, it felt very much like things were in a transitional phase, if you will. They weren't kind of where they had been, but they weren't quite where they were trying to get to. (laughs) And I don't quite remember the specifics about Vue or even React exactly, but I just remember thinking or feeling a level of frustration about how much stuff I needed just to put some elements on the page. Things like, you know, working with build scripts and um, thinking through, I I just felt like there was a lot of layers before you actually got that initial, all right, I'm making something. (laughs) And I think that's probably where you and I connected. And I just, I think for Vue itself, it just wasn't totally clear to me, like how to go from that initial getting started to actually building an app.
0: Interesting. Because I think a lot of the docs at that time had started off with the like, oh, you can like sprinkle this in, in your HTML file and it'll just work. So it's interesting that you went like full on build script. Because I remember at that time, like there was, I think Evan is still asking this question, like, is it better to introduce people to the build scripts first? Or is it better to like, do the peppering in over HTML and whatnot.
2: Oh, I I love that you all are talking about this because for me, I think that (laughs) in some ways, perhaps the answer is both. But even with uh, the current onboarding experience with Vue 3, which I actually enjoyed, what I left with is perhaps... Spoiler alert. (laughs) What? Spoiler alert? <laughs> oh, did I enjoy I it? it. <laughs> yes, I, I enjoyed the view, although I definitely had some, some moments here and there where I, I had some things that I almost wanted to ask you all about. But one of them was that. And I think that sometimes when onboarding developers into a new framework or a new technology, the debate typically comes up, how prescriptive do we want to be? about how you can use this technology. And I think depending on the technology in question, especially where frameworks are concerned, sometimes you can sort of, the technology almost moves you in one direction or another. We're gonna be hands-off developers, you can do what you like, or we're gonna be pretty hands-on because maybe it's a lot more batteries included type framework. And we're gonna show you the way that you should be doing things. I think at least with something like Vue, where it seems like, again, that sprinkling in some Vue into your HTML, I think was how you, you described it. And I, I that that feels very much like currently what the onboarding approach tends to favor. What I think I was hoping to see at some point, and this actually goes back all the way to the Vue on docs for me, is, once I have that initial onboarding, and by the way, that, that first section in the docs, I can't remember what the name of the section is off the top of my head. I think it's just it your, getting
3: started or something. Yeah, getting
2: started, right? As as typical, right? Or actually no, it's the essentials. So I read the um, I go, went to docs and went to essentials. And once you're past installation, just read through the introduction and follow all of all of the all of the sections there all the way through to through component. Basics. That stuff is fun to read. And I think that that was largely, even though I'm sure the content has changed drastically just because you're on version three and not version one anymore, that was an interesting onboarding into the different pieces of the framework at a very high level. From there, what I think I was hoping to see both with the View 1 docs and currently with View 3 is great, what do I? How do I just adopt this whole hog? (laughs) And where do I get a perspective on how to structure my app from the beginning, assuming that I'll just be using Vue as a framework for the whole thing? And that's where, at least for me, I I found I had I felt that I really needed to do some digging. Probably the closest thing that I found to that perspective of this is how you could bootstrap an app, and this is the recommended getting started structure, was the CLI output. So I can create a new view app from the CLI. And it shows me at least sort of a basic scaffolding, if you will, of how I might start building just a view app from the start. So, I guess that just kind of coming back to the higher level with the question of, you know, with the question being, do you want to be hands off with developers and not lead them too much because you don't want to stifle sort of their creativity or make them assume that they may not have options that they actually have versus perhaps someone like me who's still pretty new to it? Uh, I'd actually like a maybe a, a bit more hand holding into actually building a, a full application even a, something super basic right from the start.
1: I think, I know for me, when I was getting started, when I was getting started, it was with the intention that we would be rewriting, rewriting our entire app in it. So like, I already knew I was going to have to go whole hog. And you're right. I like like, I very much like when somebody shows me, you know, these are the proven best practices. This is what we have found works after working with it extensively. And I do agree that the docs miss that a bit. However, I did find out that the same person who had created most of the Vue 2 docs had also created a repo called Vue Enterprise Boilerplate, which was very prescriptive. And that was honestly how I got into being able to really navigate around a vue repo.
0: Yeah, and I know that with vue there's a lot of like stuff where it's like okay, you can kind of as long as you have your single file components with a script section and a and a template section and a style section, then you can kind of do it however you want to. Like if you want to use pug, use pug. If you want to use
3: don't use pug.
0: Don't use pug, but you can if you want to. But if you want to like use TypeScript, you can use TypeScript. If you want to use whatever, right? As long as you can you can kind of get it to do whatever you want to. And I know that there's other frameworks out there that are built on top of you, like Nuxt, where it's very prescriptive. It's like, no, your pages go here, your components go here, your mixins go here, this thing goes here. And they're very like, this is how you're going to organize things. And then they're doing magic on the back end to kind of, you know, make all of that happen. So I think that there's a nice sort of variety in like, okay, if you want it to be extremely prescriptive, you can find something that's extremely prescriptive, but you have to know that it's there, right? Like
3: well, with my like very brief experience with Nuxt, I don't know if I would call it prescriptive so much as it's more like do you wish that you had the Rails experience on the front end? And so if you don't put things in those folders, then it's not going to like magically populate everything. But I feel like that's a little bit different to prescriptivism.
0: Right. But in a, in a code base that you make yourself, you could have your pages all over the place and then pull them into a router from wherever they are. Right. Like they don't have to be. And so like, having that organizational structure is like, view doesn't say that you need that organizational structure. Nuxt says you need that organizational structure. So,
3: Yeah, I mean, bringing it back to like the getting started guide, I feel like speaking of organizational structure, that's one of the things that's hard about it. Like there is this question of where should we start? But I think it could also be resolved with like, just split them into two experiences because that's basically how it is. But it's almost like, we don't want to acknowledge it because there. I just looked through the the intro of the few three docs and it looks like that part of like, okay, now you know how to do it on like an HTML page. Now let's introduce you to moving it towards like a full app through the CLI. Like that page is not there. And that's one of the things that I feel like has been frustrating through like iterations of the docs for a few years where when you're searching for like how to do something, it's it's never quite clear. Like, are you looking at the HTML thing or like the app thing? And so I feel like just like how you have the different versions, like the View Three docs and the View Two docs, just have like the HTML page docs and then like the View App docs because it gets
1: it gets yeah. really confusing. Whenever I see like the View Doc component, I'm like, what? No, I don't. I don't use that. What? So I'm like having to translate it in my head. No, I totally agree because people are. People will generally know what their target is when they're starting. Like, are they going to be trying to build a full app or are they just sprinkling it in? And yes, you can't please everyone, but like, there are pretty, like, it is going to be those two distinct camps. And I totally agree. Like, I wish that there was something geared towards people who already know, like, my my app is just going to be you.
2: Yeah, I think that that would be beneficial. I, I'm actually, I, I would be interested to see how many people take the sprinkle in approach versus the build from scratch approach just to see. I mean, I guess coming at it from just a basic onboarding so I can build a small app approach, it's, you know, the notion of sprinkling it in a little never really occurred to me in the first place. But I suppose for people who have existing apps who are trying to make incremental improvements, if you will, like, I I guess the sprinkle in approach is also important. That said for, let's say, coming from the getting started guide, where there are a lot of these helpful code pen examples, those are super helpful in showing me what I believe is probably more of that sprinkle in approach. And once I got past that, I wanted to just open up at first, the the next approach for me was to see if I could just reproduce that getting started guide, but starting with a blank folder, right? So, go into VS Code, fire up a terminal, make a. I don't. I wasn't sure what files I needed, but according to the code pen, it looked like I needed an HTML file, uh, a JavaScript file, and a you know a CSS file. So make those, and then from there, it was already clear to me that there was more going on in in the code pen then i could see if you will. So like the the sample code itself if i were just to put all of that into you know VS code editor and try to run it somehow that wasn't going to that wasn't going to work. So making that leap from just seeing the code examples which i think have some I, I wouldn't call it magic but they've got a little more going on in the background than they're exposing to the user for obviously for learning sake but going from that to having that same experience built up in my code editor would have been really tough for me, I think, if I hadn't remembered that there was a CLI for me to go to or I could just, you know, I don't remember what the command is. I think it's create view app or or something like that.
3: Yeah, I mean, even with the HTML experience, I feel like they're kind of trying to straddle two different kinds of users because like, well, we want to have it really light for beginners. But then they're also just like, here's how you make components in an app and then, you know, if I'm new to Vue, I remember this, I'd be like, whoa, I don't I don't know where those come in. Like, wh- okay, I get why I need a component because I had some experience with React and AngularJS at that point. But like, when would I make this app thing? Like, how does that all fit in? And that's kind of missing. And, you know, maybe somebody would say, well, it's not Vue's job to teach you like what a spa is. And I was like, okay, but then it's unclear who the target audience of this starting experience is supposed to be exactly
2: well also to you know and to just play devil's advocate here in defense of the guide because again I I thought it was um, incredibly useful for what I needed at the beginning it has to do the hard job of pulling certain pieces that are like basic knowledge that you need and presenting them in the abstract enough to where you can at least kind of understand what's going on or I mean I want to take the kind of out of there. You totally understand what's going on. Uh, And if you saw the little (laughs) video I made with my four-year-old daughter going through this, which wasn't planned, it just sort of happened that I ended up recording our conversation. That literally was me going through it the first time and just kind of grabbing things and plugging them in. And I, I was successful at that without really having to struggle. So it's really less about What's that initial sort of, these are some of the basic parts of the framework and more of, okay, now that you know that, where do you go from here? Well, at least in the essential section of the docs, the where do you go from here is a further, like deeper description of various pieces of the framework, which is which is great. And I enjoyed reading that, but I don't think it dovetails into sort of, okay, great. Now, you, Now you know how great this is. Let's show you how to put this all together in in an app.
3: Mm, so they inv- evangelize you, but then they don't empower you to actually do anything. Sounds like,
2: yeah, I suppose. And I think honestly, like it's not that the pieces aren't there. It's just that I had to find them. And again, I'm a I'm a big fan of CLIs in general. So knowing that I can go to a CLI type of command and bootstrap an app, you've already won me with that. It's just I need to know it exists, and I, I don't I don't see a a path to that right now.
3: Yeah, like I was telling Alex like a few weeks ago that I was trying to go through the Vue 3 like get started from scratch stuff all over again on a new machine and like I they were like install the CLI but then they don't tell you the command to like get everything started. So I ended up trying vite for the first time just cuz that was the only command on that page versus like okay, then I would have to go to the CLI page and then look through their getting started guide and I'm like this is literally the getting started guide. Why are you making me go find another page on my own? And if I recall correctly, I feel like that was one of the frustrations when you tried view the second most recent time was that they were in the process of like trying to decide what do we want to split out? And so a lot of things were scattered. And I think also like they had code samples, but the other framework that you sent me, they had like, it wasn't CodePen, but it was a similar like online editor embed and you could click on it and it would take you to like a full running instance of that framework. So you could play with it and the view docs didn't really have that equivalent, so it was really like copying and pasting and hoping that you put everything in the right place.
1: I'm super curious what framework are, are we just not going to say? I, just, I don't remember if I remembered I, I have no. said.
2: <laughs> Actually, I, I was then also thinking, okay, am I not supposed to mention the other ones because I know I, I, I named React specifically. I know in the last few years I, I've uh, especially at that time I was kicking the tires on React right around the time that they were moving away from classes and into functional components and hooks. And I may have also tried Svelte. I've I've tried that a few times over the years, but I don't remember how deep I got into it.
3: Yeah, it was a framework I'd never heard of before and I kept on forgetting it. It's like I've never got to remember
4: it.
3: Again. <laughs> Comparing it to React, like I feel like a lot of React people are like, "Oh, I like Vue because it's like really prescriptive or they don't like it because it's too prescriptive and I always feel surprised because I I feel like I can do whatever I want in view and for me another another area that I find kind of frustrating is like the style guide is way more prescriptive than the docs and then the last time I played with the linter the linter was even more prescriptive than the style guide but claims to follow the style guide and it didn't and that really irritated me and so it's like I don't like that these are surprises. Like, if you look at the view samples, a lot of them don't even follow the style guide. So it's kind of unclear how all of these pieces fit together or what I'm supposed to do. And they don't, the last time I checked, there wasn't really like a going through the docs and being like, okay, here's the style guide, here's the enterprise boilerplate. Or even the last, the last, last time I think we had a chat about the view docs, there was discussion of like, oh, docs are really great if they. Prepend like here are the prerequisites of things you need to understand. So, like for example, in the intro, they could be like you should know what components and like single page applications are and stuff like that. As far as I know, they don't really have that stuff in there, but I could be wrong. They might have it somewhere. It,
2: yeah, it, it it may be. I mean, I I see at least in the introduction that it like mentions single page applications, and I I know at some point it talks about web components. Although I don't know if it talks about it right at the top, but it's a uh, it's interesting to get a chance to to try things right there in the browser but let's say for example like with the with the samples so at the and again for anyone listening that's involved in in docs for view by the way like this is again like just kind of jamming on what's already in my book like a, a a good experience i mean i was able to get to success i i and i enjoyed reading through it i felt like it wasn't talking above me or kind of below me, it was just kind of like right at the mark uh, for what I needed when I needed it until I wanted to actually jump, make the leap and start building my own app. So I think the one thing that I was really hoping for that I I didn't see was, you know, when you initially go to the docs dropdown, you see, okay, there's a guide and a style guide and a cookbook and examples and so on. This is cool. It kind of gives me an idea that like, that's probably the higher level roadmap that I'll follow. Once I get far enough in the guide, I'll probably start to cherry pick different pieces of the onboarding experience that I'm interested in. But what I was, and again, this is just me, but from what I was expecting to eventually do was to click on examples and go to GitHub and grab those repos and start playing with those. Instead, what you have here is an, a code pen editor, which is nice to be able to play with. But again, Based on what you have here, so let's just take, for example, like the markdown editor example. If I go to that example, which is the first one in the list, I see in the HTML file, there's like a single HTML, single CSS, and single JavaScript file. And again, this may be my ignorance of how to use CodePen, but all it gives you, code sandbox. (laughs) All it gives you is like a, a div at the top. And so I think Tessa, you may have been making this point earlier, but okay, without in so that's super clear for me from a learning perspective, it's wonderful. however, if I want to make the jump from that into again like rebuilding that experience in my code editor, I don't know where that div goes, and I also have to assume that somehow we're pulling in view as a dependency and so on and so forth and i'm I'm not seeing that anywhere here, so what i what I would hope for is to be able to actually go to github and get like the full the full code. And I I did try to go to github and and look around for it but I didn't see anything like that.
3: Yeah, I forget. Does CodePen let you run a full like view app now?
0: Sort of. They have they have single file component editor so you can actually build single file components on CodePen and you can import them into each other so you can like build one over here and it does this one thing and then you can tell the other one, okay, import the URL to that one and then you'll be able to use it. Mm. So it's not quite that.
3: but Yeah, I mean, it would be nice if it, it theoretically just with the parameters we've set up here, it does seem possible to have a full running app instance online that you can post snippets of into the docs. And I agree that that would be helpful if you're like, mm, I don't quite understand this. I'm not getting the info I need from the docs, So let me look at the full app to see the context of this thing.
2: For sure. One, one thing that I've learned over time with you know, just in leading developer relations and developer experience is that oftentimes it's the sample code that turns into the most popular resource. Can you say
3: that one more time louder for the people in the back?
2: <laughs> <Oftentimes>, <laughs> sure, I'll say it again. But yeah, oftentimes it's the it is the code samples that become the most popular resource for developers. And there's a definite double-edged sword there because uh I'll I'll tell you like the 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 negative piece of that can be that like code that you commit to your samples will eventually come back to you as a question yeah. on Stack Overflow or on you know your your support channels or wherever else. I've written code in samples that eventually comes back as part of support questions relating related to production apps. So you really have to be careful about like what you put out there in terms of samples. At the same time, there are I and I, I've heard this directly from people, from developers as well as just seeing where people go, right, based on the traffic. And it's oftentimes the samples, they just, you know, especially for uh, developers at certain levels, they just want to go, maybe it's not a level thing, right? Maybe it's more of a learning style thing. yeah But there's definitely a lot of people out there that are just like, okay, get out of my way and show me one way that this can work in a larger context.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like that's part of the confusion for me with the getting started guys, is it seems ambivalent about like, do we want to address the type of developers that just need to see the code? and they're good to go? Or do we want somebody that wants a fully guided experience? And so they kind of do a little bit of both. And I feel like between the sample code and having the guided experience, people can find their own way. But halfway between, it's it's harder to bridge that gap. Yeah,
2: and this is a really hard question. One that I've never been in, you know, in terms of like working on onboarding developers to a particular API. I've never worked in a context where this doesn't come up, right? So in other words, like, there's so many people, so many personas, if you will, coming in who are trying to do different things. How do you offer them all a path w- without accidentally getting the wrong people in the wrong paths or confusing them at the at the top, you know, at the at the front door? And it's something that even today I'm thinking about at, at DataStacks, and it's something I thought of a lot about with a lot of uh, great colleagues at Adobe in terms of like you know, safer. In in our case at Adobe, I think it was an interesting, uh, particularly interesting challenge because we could say, well, okay, we're targeting developers, but as soon as you said the word developer, you had a bunch of people in our ecosystem who were building stuff, but didn't identify with the word developer. Mm-hmm. Maybe they considered themselves scripters. Some of them didn't identify with any of these technical terms. They were creatives who had happened to learn just enough JavaScript to get something done and they were fine with that that was as far as they wanted to go and if you said the word developer they were assuming you weren't talking to them even though you were and so for us it was a <laughs> you can imagine the the challenge of saying okay we want to be able to effectively onboard people on this spectrum from i don't really know javascript but i know the core application like photoshop very well all the way to maybe I work in a large enterprise and I'm on a small engineering team who has been assigned the job of building a plugin that connects to our asset management service internally. Those people coming in are very different needs and they have very different skill sets that they're bringing to the table. And so for what it's worth, the fact that maybe it seems that the audience isn't specifically defined in the getting started guide it's probably just because, like the, I mean, it's a, it's an incredibly difficult challenge to to figure out without really kind of starting from, I suppose, first principles, thinking about who you're trying to enable and what jobs they're trying to get done, and then and then building from there. And oftentimes, I think that the imperative is just like help people get started, help people get started, and we don't we don't get a chance to step back and think, okay, who are the people? Yeah, what are they getting started doing? Previously on Cloudflare for the Dramatic. I need an application,
4: and I need it to be serverless. Ah!
3: And now,
0: for the startling conclusion to Cloudflare for the Dramatic.
4: The client needs
0: to be able to call secret APIs from around the world. What are we going to do?
4: Uh, I think they said secure.
3: And on top of that, they have to be secure.
4: Well, Cloudflare worker...
3: get a hundred or a million customers who even knows how are we going to support all of that
4: so cloudflare workers scale plus
3: if
1: the site takes too long to load he says that could cost him thousands maybe even hundreds of dollars in sales
4: actually cloudflare workers have no cold start and
3: he expects all of this to work around the world
4: Like I've been trying to say, Cloudflare Workers supports all that. It's an edge-based serverless platform without cold starts or maintenance overhead that allows you to deploy code around the world for exceptional performance, reliability, and scale. To learn more, visit enjoytheview.io slash cloudflare hyphen workers. Oh,
3: okay. Well, thank goodness for Cloudflare! My hero! join us next time for another episode of cloudflare for the dramatic
1: are, are you dying
0: no i'm i'm not dying we're doing a we're recording a thing for cloudflare workers
3: are, are you sure i think also just like it would be nice if there was a little bit more discoverability like putting more opportunities in the docs to stumble upon the style guide or stumble upon the cookbook like Really, the only time I check the cookbook is if Sarah tweets like, oh, I made this news example. and I'm like, oh, yeah, that exists versus like um, there's that like, I don't know, television drama like CW type trope where you like accidentally leave a mitten at like your crush's place or something. So they'll have to bring it to you. Like I want that kind of experience in in the guide where they just like casually throw out a mention of something in the style guide or something in the cookbook and be like, look at this thing and kind of have it be a more integrated experience. Cause I think that is one thing that some other framework and library users like about Vue is there's like an official router and an official CLI. And they're like, oh, it's all under one umbrella. But everything is actually kind of distributed across separate websites, like the CLI has its own website. And then they don't really pull everything together in a way that somebody new that doesn't know about all of the integrated stuff is like, oh, yeah, there's this thing and that thing.
2: Yep, it's an internal challenge. And one that, by the way, once you start doing then turns into this sort of tricky maintenance thing as well. So if someone over here changes something and this person over here isn't aware of that, then now eventually you end up with like broken links or deprecated resources that eventually don't exist anymore and and that kind of thing. So th- these, it's, it's interesting. And in, I mean, in a good way, how we all at least we all bump up to the against the same good problems, but it is interesting that there's not sort of one silver bullet for solving them.
3: Yeah, even with developers, there's such a broad spectrum. I was in a meeting about developer personas, and I was like, I know so many developers that don't fit any of these. How are we defining developer?
2: Yes, developers are not a monolith. Is sort of a continued rallying cry for different contexts I've worked with then. And I think, of course... It's not that people don't know that, right? Of course we know that developers are not a monolith, but in the day-to-day when trying to get stuff done, can be easy to fall into that pattern of talking about developers uh when in reality maybe it's good to at least have some notion of what larger even if they're not really clearly defined personas, even if you know it it can be enough as a start, just to have an idea of like what for lack of a better word what buckets of of types of people are coming in and ultimately what i think helps even more for me and what i spend more time thinking about these days is really like the what are what jobs are people trying to do what are they trying to accomplish and see if we can provide intentional and deliberate paths based on those things
3: yeah or maybe at least like over document and over communicate but give really clear like roadmap or escape hatches so people can be like oh i already know this part i can skip it and go to the next thing
2: yeah
0: yeah and it's sort of like the the challenge with that of course always is the like oh yeah i know this part but actually i there's that like three sentences down at the end that i don't know that i don't know that i don't know and like missing that completely, that has happened to me so many times.
2: Totally. That almost happened to me actually going through the docs here. Because when I was first going through the getting started guide, one thing that jumped out to me at a syntax level about Vue is that when you are writing, you're, you're referencing property values on a, an HTML tag that are going to come in from say like, uh, and again, excuse me if I get the jargon wrong, I'll try to explain this uh, the way that I understand it. I thought it,
3: you were but... a developer.
2: <laughs> Not a view developer. So I've, I, I wanna make sure that I'm using the right words here. The, if you, when you are bringing in a, a value into an uh, an HTML property, unlike other frameworks that I've seen, you end up using double quotes and then just verbatim writing. Um, so, for example, like if I was uh, making like an item in a list, I might have something like um, on on the on the HTML tag colon item equals or sorry colon name equals and then in double quotes item dot name, which. It first kind of threw me for a loop when I was doing the getting started guide, but typically my approach with getting started is like, you have to suspend disbelief because like you can't learn everything at once. So, okay, there must be a reason why that's like that. But it turns out instead of using mustaches, like you might in other frameworks there, when it comes to the attributes on a a tag, like an element, you actually end up using double quotes instead and then just writing in like the object and property name verbatim there. And I was kind of going back to that previous point about missing those <laughs> two or three vital sentences. I almost skipped that entirely except uh, there was a there was a section in the docs talking about just this this topic and then at some point it said okay when you are when you are putting um you know props onto a, an element you use double tags and not mustaches and um and I think it explained why I don't remember off the top of my head but I think that was like the, the most useful like, nugget of information on that page for me at the time was like, okay, so there is actually a reason for this. And just based on the fact that I also knew that that's actually explicitly a rule in view kind of helped me move on without really having to think about it much after that.
3: Yeah, I guess when I think about the struggles, when I try to go back to react, it makes sense. But it's so funny to me, because I think part of the motivation was like, because you're talking about the attributes that you pass to directives, it sounds like so it's, it's like on a on an element in the DOMs so that are like let's make it look like HTML attributes. So theoretically, it should be familiar because it's like oh it's just like HTML. But I think that's something I hear a lot. And also like that everything is on the this context, but that you don't need to explicitly say that in the template or the HTML part that throws or sometimes upsets people a lot.
2: <laughs> that's a good one because I actually saw that somewhere early on in the experience too and uh the the this thing and i looked at that and i said okay the framework's doing something here i don't know what it is but i get i get the result i understand what the result is so i'm going to let that go for now um and just you know again like suspend disbelief it's clearly doing something that i wasn't expecting but i i could adapt to it and then again later on you know, on some other page there was a paragraph kind of talking about that a little more and also explaining like I think it was in the context of like why you shouldn't use arrow functions.
3: Yeah. Mm, yeah.
0: Yeah, there there in view there are places you can use arrow functions and there are places that you can't use arrow functions and uh you have to know if you're going to use arrow functions you have to know when you can and when you
3: can't. And also places where you can use functions versus objects.
0: Yeah, that too. So, it gets tricky
2: Oh, it's handy to know. Yeah, because I'm just default arrow function everywhere. And so when when that's not something you should be doing, and I I, it was clearly obvious, even from the I think from the getting started that that was being avoided for avoided or whatever the word might be, like I wasn't seeing arrow functions where I might have put them. And so I thought, well, there's probably probably a reason for that, too.
3: Mm, That's a good thing to call out.
0: Yeah, you you can't bind this to an arrow function is uh, the short version of that because it always looks to its parent
2: context.
3: I thought you could bind it, but it's not automatic.
2: Oh, is is it okay if I ask a question? Yeah. Okay. No, of course. No. <laughs> 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 I'm really curious because I, I almost went down the wrong path from the get-go because you go to vuejs.org and and then I just clicked the get started button and took a second but I realized that I was actually looking at the vue 2 docs so I I'm, I'm just curious like is is vue 3 like GA at this point or is it is there still a transition do do developers tend to expect to be working with vue 2 by default when they show up I'm just curious like why the vue 2 docs load by default
3: I mean the framework itself is GA I yes. think is is the short version. The,
0: the, yeah, the short version is view three is GA. Who no wants longer... to
1: define GA for people who don't know what it means? General, general assembly, v. the yeah. boot camp, general, obviously.
0: General availability, so it's it's generally available to everyone. So yeah, it is. It, they are slowly pushing people to be like, you should really use view three. You should use, should use view three. You should use view three. The challenges.
3: Challenges are.
0: The t- multiple challenges are. One of the m- primary ones is the ecosystem has not caught up yet. <laughs>
3: do we have a good migration path yet? If you already have a prod app in Vue two, like I feel like that's still in progress.
0: There's technically a migration build thing. See how you can high your voice do? just got. <laughs> I don't like that. It's, there's a page about it somewhere. It's if it, there's a thing.
2: Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. It's actually if yeah. you go to Docs for View Three, um, at the bottom of that dropdown, there's a migration from View Two
1: page. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but that's all manual. That is, yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> there's a lot of stuff in View Two that doesn't translate correctly to View Three because I mean it's it's a huge major version bump. They really changed like the underlying infrastructure of how View works rather dramatically. And so some of it's backwards compatible and some of it isn't. And that's, it's a very hot topic.
1: Do people still go there? I, for example, use Vue 2 in my day-to-day.
0: So at this point, I think most things are still running on Vue 2.
3: I think also at least the initial plan was have the Vue 3 docs live at V3.vue.js for like through the end of 2021. Maybe it was 2020 and I'm blurring years, but I think it was like for at least the next year after they announced it, they wanted to keep it in the separate URL before making it like part of the main page experience.
1: I think there was also a lot of miscommunication about what the migration experience would be like. I know that from view one to view two, there was an actual migration tool that you would just run on your code base and it would basically be like, here are all the things you need to change. And so, originally, that was what we were told to expect. But then, the person who was building that departed the Viewcore team, and I guess nobody decided to pick that up. And so now, I personally am like, "I what? Huh? That, what? What do you want me to do? I I can't. I want it to be easy. If you don't make it easy, I'm just not going to do it." For sure. Yeah, it was supposed to be really full coverage. It's a shame.
2: Yeah, it's it's always a big ask. I mean, to to make these kind of migrations, and we certainly had to do our fair share of that at Adobe as well when we rev on our in application APIs. And I, I think that there, are, when when working on uh, a team that's putting APIs out into the world, the excitement of that can really sometimes cloud your visibility into the fact that like. No one's, no developer probably, or very few developers are waking up in the morning thinking, I want to spend a week or a month or whatever it is migrating to some new version of whatever API I'm using. So that's a, and I think that at least it seems really like awesome that Vue's taking this software approach. It seems to encourage developers to to migrate in terms of like long timelines and all of that, because the reality is if you've got people using your APIs in a in a production setting, like it's not like, you know, people, companies plan their roadmaps by sometimes at least at a high level across an entire year in advance and then by halves and then by quarters. So if we give, if you were to say, well, we're gonna give you six months to make a transition, that's a tough thing given that probably the developers have to go through product management to figure out like what the level of prioritization is and figure out how the resourcing is going to work and all of that kind of thing. So I think, you know, when it comes down to just like the the raw excitement and fun of APIs, yeah, going to the next version and and providing new features or a cleaner version of APIs and that kind of thing is is always awesome uh, at least from my perspective, but like when it comes down to let's say customers or consumers of your API their their excitement as a developer can be muted by the reality of the fact that they're working in a, a broader context with their companies.
3: Yeah, I also wonder if it's affected by, and this is like different, whole different episode, but like the the fact that Vue is not really like a company. I mean, like they bring in money and like some people make their living with Vue, but it's primarily like an open source project with like te- a team of volunteers. So it's like, how does that product development get driven? How is it organized? Like I have zero insight into it, so I'm not going to claim I know anything about it, but it's like a very different model to like the people that are facing these questions about migrating from Vue 2 to Vue 3.
2: Yeah, I think that when when pondering developer experience broadly, one of the things that is important to get to and And be able to offer, but often isn't there at the very beginning is some sort of insight into the future in terms of like where things are going. And I didn't actually dig into this at all, but I know that again, like I've had to work on catching up to getting to that level of expectation in any context I've worked in thus far, but oftentimes that's going to be at bare minimum, some sort of roadmap that gives people insight into like, how are different features, coming along, where are they slated to eventually see light of day? Also, and especially with open source, I would think that probably there's a there's also a component of how do we make sure that the right stakeholders in the community are able to weigh in before just going straight ahead with some changes.
3: Or making it completely free-for-all for anybody to weigh in.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I can imagine that that's got to be a difficult Path to walk if you are part of, if you're running an extremely popular project, right? Because at some point, and this is something that I haven't necessarily dealt with as much because a lot of times, especially where Creative Cloud was concerned, a lot of our APIs were so niche that, you know, we, it's not that we knew everyone, but a lot of the people we were interacting with on a day to day basis, you would get to know by name. I imagine for a broader framework that can be used anywhere all over the world in lots of different types of applications how do you deal with sort of drive by (laughs) sort of you know issues or requests or whatever else versus um you know kind of perhaps folks who are a bit more committed to the framework for the long term i'm sure that there's a that's a that's a challenge uh, once you are once you have a community that's uh, operating at much more scale.
3: Yeah, and then bringing that back to what you were inferring about the function statement or whatever versus the arrow function and also like the sample code coming back to bite you. Like I think hypothetically, if there were a situation where like, I don't know, somebody was like the face of, of a widely used tool or something and they just threw out some sample code or like a tweet about something in the absence of other concrete information or like the ignorance that that information exists, I think people, you know, it's kind of like you're a deity and they're like, this is the word, or like, this is the way. And like, this person wrote this or said this. So it must be like the absolute truth. And it's like, So
1: hypothetical.
3: (laughs) Well, in in fairness, I will say all of Evan's sample code that I've seen has been very thoughtful and deliberate, but I do think that that's something that just happens a lot in, in general and that's like tough tough on both ends, or I guess all three ends, the people that do that, the people that make the things that people are inferring from, and also the people on on the outside of that parasocial relationship that are like, what is happening?
2: One page that I think used to exist, and I'm not sure does anymore, but was also something that I'm not sure why I'll have to remember, but I used to come back to this as an example of something that I thought was quite interesting at least in the Vue docs was the first time I recall having seen something like this was like a completely honest self-assessment of where Vue stood uh, amongst other frameworks at the time. And again, I I recall seeing this in the V1 docs and maybe it's still here, but I thought it was really cool. I mean, like one, you know, if you, I mean, let's, let's be honest, like we live in a, a world where people approach anything knowing most likely what some of their other options are. And so not just why would I pick this, but I I, I recall Vue having a page in the View One docs that was something like why well, you might not want to use it. And I, I always thought that was a really cool
3: I think it's the why js page and they used to have it for View Two as well, but it looks like they replace it with a video.
2: Ah, yeah. I yeah, it's funny. I I guess I'm so, so I did watch one of the videos, and actually, I made some notes as I was onboarding, and I thought like the, the intro video that I watched was was good. I mean, that's literally what I wrote. It's like, oh, this video is good. Um, but at the same time, I'm I often, I, I want, yeah, I, I if the one on the top page that says YViewJS, I clicked that and realized that I didn't have an option just to read it, so kind of yeah. walked away from yeah, it. Yeah, I was just
3: thinking that right now, well, we can't skim it and see if it has that info or not. Uh, but I, I agree that that was one thing I really appreciated as well. Like, if, like seemingly honest review of like the pros and pitfalls of each framework. I found that really helpful. It informed one of my first talks, like view versus react versus angular JS. I was like, wow, so much of it is right there on the view docs. Perfect.
2: Yeah. And I think that uh, right there on the front page, it says, you know, it's approachable, versatile and performant. And I think those are, those are great qualities of a, of a framework. But I would also assume that a lot of frameworks might, maybe they don't frame it, their their qualities in exactly the same way, but a lot of people are going to be, you know, who wouldn't want a performant framework, right? So probably a lot of frameworks probably wouldn't advertise as being non-performant. So it has helped to provide a little bit of context. Now, of course, it says right here, it gives you actually some numbers. And I think that's awesome to, to be able to look at and say, okay, wow, it's a tiny runtime and, and that kind of thing. But I don't you know, know it, maybe
3: I'm weird. I think twenty kilobytes is too big. I wish there was a version of Vue that was like six kilobytes or less. <laughs> <I think
0: it's, laughs> Sorry, we petite, we just did an
3: episode on Petite View and that's that's 5. essentially 5. what it 5. is. It's five yeah.
0: Five point five.
3: I said In or words. less. Petite view. Yeah.
0: Petite view is Evan's answer to Alpine JS. Oh.
3: Which was um, someone else's take on like things they liked about View and a handful of other frameworks.
1: Never nerd snipe Evan. He will win. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Wait. Okay. Let's start building a migration tunnel.
1: I'm kidding. (laughs) Whoa! (laughs) Genius.
2: It's cool that it's called Petite View. I think so. I've been to like the the View NYC meetup. You know, Adobe Creative Cloud sponsored it when I was uh, still on the team right before the pandemic, if I remember correctly. And I've also been to like maybe Tessa. You could. Probably remind me, but it was like one of the first maybe view meetups, or it was a conference at the Microsoft Center. I remember Evan speaking at that,
3: yeah, yeah, that was like the first view meetup in New York. I don't know if it was the first view meetup ever or the first one that Evan was at, but yeah, that was that was a while ago,
2: yeah, that was an awesome event,
3: yeah, it it was, but I was trapped downstairs because I offered to help with help letting people into the building. And then the other organizers forgot I was there and turned off their phones so they could pay attention to the talk, so I missed almost all of it.
2: <laughs> life of an organizer sometimes you end up sacrificing, enjoying the stuff that you've spent all of that time putting together or you know helping facilitate for me like that was like the first time that I was ever exposed to anything beyond just sort of the core view framework and so I remember perhaps that was my introduction to some of the hilarious naming conventions in the view world where sometimes it's like a, a viewified naming of something that probably existed in the react world sometimes it's just putting like the letters vu on the front of some other word and often end up getting confused with those different words so Petite view, I think, is very easy to remember and also uh, pretty self-explanatory.
3: That's true. Well, I think he probably felt like he was in theme because petite is French, and a lot of Evan's words are derived from French. Yeah, I think that event is also where I met Pine, who has his own naming conventions that are like also very out there. Maybe he should Icelandic. rename his last name from Wu to View. Yeah. Oh my gosh, Icelandic. Yeah, actually, Ash, uh, I think your meetup was like the first meetup I ever went to. So this is like bringing back memories.
2: Which meetup was that?
3: Coffee and code or something conundrums.
2: Ah, that's right. Yeah, coffee and coding conundrums. international so- meetup. <laughs> it was. So I, yeah, I started that in Osaka where I was living before I came to New York about up until about, so that would have been up until almost seven years ago. And at the time, I was getting deeper and deeper into coding beyond WordPress, which was kind of like the thing I mostly did previously. And I just didn't at the like today, there's like so many awesome resources to learn. It's almost too much, right? When you just say, okay, I want to learn JavaScript. Back then, the problem was like, okay, where's the front door? Today, the problem might also be where's the front door, but it's a different reason why. And it's because we have this embarrassment of riches of like just getting started content out there in the world. So at the time, I mean, and it, it could have been partially also because I was living in, in Japan, and so it wasn't like you could just pop out, buy a book on like buy an O'Reilly book and kind of get started that way or whatever you might do. Because a lot of times the tra- there's a lot more limited options in terms of what's been translated. So yeah, I started this meetup and uh the <laughs> the whole idea was to encourage people who or smarter than me to come in and basically talk about their projects and if I'm lucky answer some of my questions. And so though the whole concept was essentially come in uh, and maybe we'll do some hacking for a while and then after that, something that I don't know that we did in the New York version as much because it, it in New York it tended to be a little bigger was at least in Osaka we would just kind of pair up and like demo our side projects to each other and talk about it and maybe um, help each other out where we could. But it was pretty neat. We got some uh, interesting folks coming through. We had, it was kind of one of the first times I learned about 3D printing in any depth from a jewelry maker. We had someone who worked on the last uh, Mad Max film some, as some sort of uh, special effects person. He was creating some sort of hardware that would help you, if I remember correctly, better better balance cameras or something like that. But there was a huge code component to it. At some point we had somebody working on some sort of project that involves satellites. You know, it's all, and here's me kind of just trying to get into Node.js for the first time. And so it was, it was really eye-opening to get an opportunity just to see like the, the breadth of different things that people had in mind uh, when they saw the meetup and said, yes, I want to I join that and come talk about uh, cool software things I'm working on.
3: Yeah. The breadth of projects in, in the wild. The breadth of the wild. I just wanted to make Ari groan.
1: (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, so the burning question of the day. Did you enjoy the view?
2: Yeah, uh, I did. I can see where there's actually some uh, fun things that I may continue to work on here just to tie in uh, our uh, AstroDB at data stacks and uh, use it in the context of Vue. I think we have sample apps for React right now. As far as I know, we don't have anything for Vue. I could be wrong about that. But I want to play with that, uh, getting getting an opportunity to plug in an external data source into a, a basic Vue app. So yes, I enjoyed it, and uh, so did my four-year-old daughter who uh, came in last night trying to avoid bedtime. She crawled up on my lap, <laughs> and it was literally like when I was going through the getting started guide, and we were just sitting there copying, pasting stuff. Um, it, it was kind of funny because uh, on the in the getting started guide, what kicked off that conversation with my daughter was actually uh, I was trying to load the first code sample. I think, and I got blocked by a CAPTCHA. and uh, <laughs> so she asked me, Did "Like, I know
3: you're a robot?"
2: Yeah, so she asked me, "Like, uh, what is wh- why is there was like a big exclamation mark on the page? It was like a Cloudflare thing, I believe," and I said. Well, it's because this thing wants to check if I'm human. And she said, But you are. So why is it doing that? And I'm like, I don't know. I just have to click all of the traffic lights here. Hold on. Um but then when I realized that just explaining these like little things about like what was going on in the screen is gonna be funny, I, I just started doing a screencast of like re- or a screen recording of it and put it up on Twitter. I don't know. Uh when it's your kid everything's adorable, but I thought it was kind of funny, so I, I put it up online. <laughs>
3: yeah I mean keeping a four year old from going to bed is probably one of the greatest compliments their framework could have
2: yeah totally yeah if uh you kept my daughter up on a on a Wednesday night past bedtime, and so at some point my wife Ryoko walked in and was like she's supposed to be in bed, uh, which is vaguely audible in the in the recording <laughs>
1: <laughs> well if people want to find that adorable video for themselves, where can people find you online?
2: Ah, uh, yeah. So I'm. Uh, let's see. I'm on Twitter. So rarely, actually, but I did post that. I don't. I don't get on too much. But I'm actually looking up what is my. Ah, so on Twitter, I'm uh, Ash. <laughs> Ry- <laughs> that's how often. So sorry. Uh, on Twitter, I'm Ash Ryan underscore I O. And Fancy. For, for Instagram, which I think I'm a bit more active on, but it's less developer-y stuff because I'm also a photographer. So I, I post on Instagram as ashryan.io. And if for whatever reason you want to get on GitHub <laughs> and see my profile there, it's ashryanbeats, like ashryan and then B-E-A-T-S. And yeah, that's about it.
1: All right i guess let's move on to picks um tessa you're up okay
3: my first pick i'm picking the great ace attorney chronicles again because it's been pre-ordered it it came out it arrived it's downloaded on my switch still have not played it so i think i'm just going to keep on picking this until i actually it. <laughs> uh so wow. that's my first pick go ahead ash
2: Oh, I, I haven't played one of those games since maybe the first one on the DS like 15 years ago.
3: Did you play in Japanese or English?
2: Probably Japanese. I, I don't, I mean, I, yeah, it would have been in Japanese, I'm almost certain, just because that's where I was living. And I don't know that DS's would freely let you switch back and forth the way that the Switch does.
3: They did. I have so many like kanji games and stuff on my shelf.
2: Oh, yeah, they're so good.
3: Yeah. Oh, that was, that was narrow. We had a long talk about. The the Darth of like experimental games post DS and PlayStation Vita.
2: Totally, totally, yeah. DS was a was a great little machine, and I I do I miss that. Uh, switch is awesome, but there was there's something a little, a little bit more almost Nintendo y, if you will, about like how experimental some of the games and um, and things that you could do on the switch or on the DS were.
3: Yeah. So. Yeah, that's my first pick. I know there's a lot of puns in the Japanese version. I don't know if there's as many in the English version, but if you like puns, Sherlock Holmes, maybe check it out. My other pick is uh somebody had tweeted a few months ago the Saturn eating his son painting but rendered in like a very like tech art kind of way. Yeah, it's right there. Um and so I found out a couple of weeks ago that you could get a print of it and I was like, "Oh, that's great." So, that's my second pick is is the stereotypical tech art version of that Goya painting
2: that is so twisted but yeah if uh if someone hasn't if if not everyone has seen the original painting it's really disturbing and worth also looking up I guess if you scroll down you can find it on that page wow that's crazy
1: Alex you're up
2: next
0: uh, yeah, uh, so I have one pick this week, and it is Shang-Chi and the Legend of Ten Rings. No spoilers, the new,
2: please.
0: The new Marvel movie. Uh, my spoiler is, it's really good.
4: <laughs> it
0: was fun. It was very fun. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And yeah, you should totally go see it if you are able. And if not, you should wait until it's on streaming and then see it. So that is that is my pick for this week.
2: Where are you on what if? I'm caught up. Nice. Yeah, this week was, I mean, they've all been, by my estimates, by my estimation, they've all been really good, but this week was like, uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah.
1: Okay, Ash, do you have any picks for us?
2: Yeah, so I just have a couple. Uh, So I've been using this app called Obsidian. Have y'all ever heard of it?
0: Uh,
1: Maybe. If you say it three times, Ben Hong will appear. Yes, if you say (laughs)
3: it three times,
0: Ben Hong will appear.
3: Earlier in the episode, Ash said something about like, I have a notion of something. And then in my brain privately, I went on this silly tangent of like, every time we want to say you have a notion, we should just say Obsidian instead. Cause Ben forsook notion for Obsidian. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, only I'll get that. I'll never tell anybody, but here I am.
2: And here we are. Well, no, I think, it yeah. So it's a, uh, I, I was a big notion evangelist uh, within uh, my previous team and we were, we were using it. And I still think it's a great product, uh, but at the same time, I do occasionally get to this point where I'm like, "Hmm, I would kind of like to know where my files are," you know. And that's what Obsidian does. It's an it's a knowledge base that that works on local Markdown files. It's not the same as Notion or other apps that you've used. There there are differences, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And I think the one of the interesting things is the the plugin ecosystem that's built up around it. I think it's all based on web technologies. It's you know JavaScript and HTML. And there's some pretty cool stuff that, that you can already download today to use. I like to use it to make like my my list of most important things in the morning and put it in Obsidian every day. And there's a nice little way that you can automate that. So I'm not as deep as many people are into Obsidian, but for what I'm getting out of it so far, I think it's great um, and it's free. So it's it's worth a try if you haven't. And the last thing I'll, I'll, I just, I don't know why I put this here, but I guess since I was recording that thing with my daughter last night, this was just on my mind. Uh, we got this box set um, of books. You know, when you have a little kid, you're always getting books to read and we read books every night. I got this box set that's uh, titled What You Do Matters, and it's got three different um, interesting little books in it. One's called What Do You Do With An Idea? One's called What Do You Do With A Problem? And one's called What Do You Do With A Chance? And yeah, they're just really cute little books and I think sometimes these sort of you you end, you end up with these books where I bet the kids acting on it or interacting with it at a different level than you are but at the same time it's just like a fun thing, right? So what do you do with an idea? How do you how do you accept this idea as your own and how do you let it grow and you know, not too heavy on the word count or anything like that, but the the illustrations are just gorgeous and it's actually the the kind of books that even though they're kids books, I have displayed prominently in, in our, our living room up on a bookshelf, because um, I just think they're really beautiful the illustrations. So if you're looking for something that's kind of like inspirational, motivational, fun for you, and as a, as an adult to read, to think, rethink kind of some of these basic ideas, uh, but also uh, let your kid look at some awesome illustrations and give them a super positive message. Uh, I think these books are fantastic.
1: I have one pick this week. It's sort of boring, but it's also amazing at the same time. Uh, Neutrogena Hydro Boost Body Gel Cream is the best lotion I have ever found and the best part is is it also comes in an unscented version for those of you who have sensitive skin yeah Uh, I personally have both versions because my husband has sensitive skin I do not and I like things that smell nice so (laughs) my office has the scented version the bathroom has the unscented version but it's uh it lasts really long it's non-greasy I honestly, I shouldn't admit this, but I even use it on my face instead of like their way more expensive uh, facial moisturizer of the same variety. I'm going to call saying, the Neutrogena well. police right now. <laughs> 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 um, their specific facial moisturizer is also good, but it's very expensive for not a whole lot. And I would rather just get a whole bottle for about the same price <laughs> as opposed to like one ounce. Anyway, rant. But yeah, so that is my one pick. It's especially good for dry climates like Colorado. Though, you know, I would use it in Mississippi too. I'm just saying it's that good. (laughs) Spoiler alert. Uh, Yeah, some people know why I said that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so that is all for this week. If you're not following us on Twitter, why not? Do you hate us? Why are you still listening if you hate us? So you should probably do that. Also, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast, again, do you hate us? Do you just want us to not be here anymore? How dare you? So do that. Leave a review because it also helps other people find us because we're awesome and you know you want that. Speaking of you know you want other people to find us, tell your friends. It makes us happy when more people listen and you want us to be happy, right? Yes.
3: Yes. But before we close, speaking of listening, I just want to ask real quick, are those audio technicas on your head?
2: Oh yeah, they are. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've long used audio technicas. I used to use some that were like shiny gold and those broke. And then I picked up these uh, bright red ones, which are favorite object of my daughter's. Uh, so I have to keep them hidden. She has a pair of headphones with little hello kitty ears on them and they're more appropriately sized for her head. So, uh, I think that I try to keep those where she can get them so she's not hunting for my headphones.
3: I just wanted to know if I recognized, like, the little pad, right? I was like, hmm. Anyway.
1: All right. Well, thanks for listening. And until next time, enjoy the
2: view. Yay. Thank you for having me. Bye.